This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Her Majesty the Queen has asked me to form a new government and I have accepted... So I want to make a big, open and comprehensive offer to the Liberal Democrats. We thought we'd come to the hospital just to get everything checked out and then things sort of sped up and then it all happened very, very quickly and um, uh, baby popped out at about 12 o'clock. So dealing with government deficits must be line one of our plan for recovery. And people should be in no doubt that we will do everything necessary to restore order to Britain's streets and to make them safe for the law abiding. Tonight, British forces are in action over Libya. It is clear to me that the British Parliament, reflecting the views of the British people, does not want to see British military action. I get that and the government will act accordingly. Calm, calm down, dear. Calm down. Calm down. Listen. Listen to the doctor. And when we have negotiated that new settlement, we will give the British people a referendum with a very simple in or out choice. The institution of marriage is now open to all. The people of Scotland have spoken, and it is a clear result. They have kept our country of four nations together. His shadow chancellor was asked on the television, could he think of one single business leader? And do you know what he said? Do you know what he said, Mr. Speaker? He said, Bill somebody. (laughs) Mr. Speaker, Bill somebody's not a person. Bill somebody's Labour's policy. I've just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, and I will now form a majority Conservative government. I believe we are stronger, safer, and better off inside a reformed European Union. And that is why I'll be campaigning with all my heart and soul to persuade the British people to remain in the reformed European Union that we have secured today. The British people have voted to leave the European Union and their will must be respected. But I do not think it would be right for me to try to be the captain that steers our country to its next destination. Nothing is really impossible if you put your mind to it. After all, as I once said, I was the future once.
Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This is the first in a two-part special where I sit down with former Prime Minister, former Tory leader, Gurley Swat, and the man who just 16% of the population feel positive about, David Cameron. In part two, we'll discuss what it's really like being in charge of the whole country and what it's like when you stop. But in part one, we'll deal with some of the bigger issues raised by his memoirs for the record, which have been serialised in The Times and The Sunday Times. David Cameron, welcome. Good morning. Great to be with you. Welcome to your first ever podcast. First, I have listened to some podcasts, but I've never appeared on one. So this is a big moment for me. Well, I want to take you back to 2015 and a tweet that you posted on the eve of the general election. Britain faces a simple and inescapable choice, you tweeted. Stability and strong government with me or chaos with Ed Miliband. How much more chaos would Ed Miliband have given us? Well, I have seen this tweet. I did see this was getting reposted a number of times. The point I was making at the time was that Ed Miliband, if he became prime minister, was likely to be propped up by the SNP who obviously have no interest in the future of the United Kingdom. Indeed, they want to break it up. And I thought that would be a very chaotic government. It turned out to be rather more chaos. Well, we've we've had a very difficult three years, and I'm full of regret and upset about that because I recognise that the failure to win the referendum played a big part in that. But of course, having won the 2015 election, if we had gone on and managed to secure Britain's place in a reformed European Union, I think we would have had a period of immense stability and growth and success. And I'm, you know, as I said in, in many of the interviews I've done, I, I, um, there isn't a day that goes by when I don't think about what happened and why and what I got wrong and what I could have done differently and, you know, why this strategy didn't work. Do you feel, because you've done a few interviews already and I know you're doing more, do you feel like people will never feel as if you've, you're sorry enough? I think, of course, I mean, some people will, you know, never forgive me for holding a referendum or never forgive me for losing it. I mean, obviously, there's a large number of people who are delighted we had a referendum, who wanted to have the choice. And I think one of the arguments that that perhaps I haven't made enough is to those people who say it was completely unnecessary to have a referendum, well, actually, the turnout at that referendum and the 17.4 17.4 million people who voted to leave is sort of testament to the fact there really was a demand for a referendum, as I believe. But obviously some people won't, won't forgive me for that, and I understand that. What I try and do in the book is explain it wasn't a flash in the pan. This wasn't, I mean, I've read so many times, perhaps even in your own newspaper, that you know the referendum came back because the Tories got whacked by UKIP in the 2014 European elections, when actually I had decided on the referendum in 2014 12 and announced it in 2013, a whole year, more than a year before those European elections. People might disagree with the decision, but it was one that I spent more time thinking about uh, than almost any other decision I took. You talk a lot in the book about how, although you don't regret having the referendum, you do regret what's played out since. And you say you take your share of the blame for the chaos that we've seen since. Who else do you think is to blame for what's happened? Well, look, ultimately... um, the country in a referendum took the decision to leave. It was, you know, as I say, I think it's the wrong decision, but it is, it's a legitimate choice for a country the size of Britain. We can be friends and partners and and neighbours of the EU rather than members. Obviously, having that referendum has played a a big part in what has happened since, but I also think, you know, the the choices that were made subsequently weren't always, I don't think, the, the right choices. I mean, so let's, I think, let's, let's focus on that. So you, mm. you talk in the book, you say you think we could have had a very close partnership with Europe. That's not what Theresa May tried, is it? You know, when you're leaving an organisation that you've been a member of for so many years, and when your trade and cooperation, everything is so tied up in that organisation, I think the sort of safest, best and most sort of secure way to leave would be to pick 
one of the existing models, a sort of Norway-style model, perhaps, and say, look, we're, we're a bigger country than Norway. Let's see what we can build on. Let's see that we can do differently. But I think that might have been a, a better way of proceeding. Did you tell Theresa that May that? Begs the, I, I had lots of conversations with Theresa when she first um, became prime minister, and I, I was always in favour uh, of what was sort of called a, a soft Brexit, and, and I, I used to talk about that, yes. But look, it, it begs the question, well, if, if you believe that was the right answer, why didn't you stay and deliver it? And to which my answer is, I think I wouldn't have been able to. I didn't have any credibility having lost the referendum, having been on so, on so much on one side of the referendum. I don't think I, I could have been the person to take the country forward. But I think that would have been, it's, none of these choices are easy. I mean, some will say, look, Brexit was impossible to deliver. There were no good choices. And others will say it's all the choices that were made. The 2017 election, the red lines, the this, the that. I, the truth is somewhere in between. It is deliverable and doable. Um, it hasn't been done yet. And that's partly because of the choices that were made. I think a closer partnership saying, look, maybe this is not the final destination, but let's leave safely, securely, sensibly, picking one of the existing models and building on it um, would have been a better way to proceed. But crucially, you also have to, always with British politics, is go back to um, the mathematics and what are your numbers in Parliament? And in the end of the day, you need more of a cross-party approach, particularly when you don't have a majority, because that's the only way you're going to get a deal deal passed. Given that you made Theresa May your Home Secretary and then kept her there for the entire time you were Prime Minister, were you surprised that she turned out to be not very good as Prime Minister? I thought she was a very good Home Secretary, uh, and, and I think she had a very difficult situation as, as Prime Minister. You could see, through everything she did, sort of shining through this sense of duty and service, this incredible application that she had, and the economic record continued to, to improve. But it, it obviously was a very difficult, difficult period. Who else do you think might be to blame, given how things have panned out? Would you have made David Davis your Brexit Secretary? <laughs> um, that's sort of, I mean, I, it wasn't my um, choice. I worked with him in the shadow cabinet when we were in opposition. I, uh, You're not very complimentary about him in your book. So. I, I didn't think, if I'm honest, that the whole setting up of a department to do the negotiations, I wasn't quite sure about that. I, I think that, of course, the prime minister can't do the whole thing themselves, but if you put it in a totally different department you're inevitably going to have tension between number 10 and that department. I think trying to anchor it in the cabinet office might have been a, a better approach, but this is sort of mechanics. But all prime ministers must be free to choose their own people. I think David Davis, I think, voted against my government about sort of 250 times. So it was unlikely I was going to um, uh, offer you him even, a job yeah. in, the, in the government. But, there's a very funny, but he's a capable guy. There's a very funny bit in the book where you're talking about when the coalition is being formed and you ring around all the gra Tory grandees and John Major and Ken Clark and they all offer you support. And uh, David Davis tells you you're, uh, he thinks the coalition's a bad idea, and you say that, that means you're probably on the right track. Well, I, I remember the calls that, that morning, and, and he wasn't the only person who was against it. There were quite a few in the Conservative Party who you know, didn't like the idea of coalition, thought we had effectively won the election because it was hard to put together a sort of alliance of Labour and Lib Dems and, and, and others, and so we should just wait it out, be the minority government. And that was, you know... It was a respectable view. I just thought it was the wrong view because the country was in a, a kind of crisis with what was happening with the economy and we needed a strong and stable um, government, to coin a phrase, and that's what I tried to put together.
those same people are basically the people we now call the Spartans, the sort of hardcore, you know, this is the hill we're going to die on, Brexiteers. They sort of plagued your, almost your entire premiership and they ultimately brought down Theresa May too. But do you, do you think they're in part to blame for the mess the yeah, country's in? Of course. In? Look, I, I mean, I, I should have said that before yeah. anything else I said. But at the end of the day, everything in politics does involve a level of compromise. No one ever gets exactly what they want. And Theresa May, to be fair to her, put together a Brexit deal. It did involve leaving the European Union. And uh, I was as probably not as frustrated as her, but bloody nearly. I mean, it was incredibly frustrating to watch these people who have wanted Brexit so badly to then vote against it over and over again. You know, I thought that was, that was extraordinary. But as I say, you have to find the numbers in Parliament to get a deal through. Um, no, I think they've, they've behaved um, in an extraordinary way. And kind of risked, above all, the thing that they most want. In terms of what's happened in Parliament recently, we've seen the extraordinary spectacle of MPs taking control of the parliamentary agenda, trying to pass their own legislation. Oliver Letwin is the sort of brains behind that. It's extraordinary that Oliver has become the leading Tory rebel, when, you know, to me, he was the ultimate loyalist. I mean, there was no one who, in my government, who worked harder, who was more dedicated when you were exhausted and didn't know which way to go, he was the person finding the solution, reaching out to experts, finding new ways of doing things. I mean, just an incredible brain and ability. For a politician, just so without any ego or side or difficulty, I mean, there's just no one more delightful to work with. But the, I mean, now, now he's on a, on a, not on the government's agenda, which for them is, 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 a, is a huge mistake, I think. Do you support what he's been doing? Do you think it's the right? I think course? no deal Brexit. Look, I'm not in Parliament, so I, I, you know, I don't feel sort of qualified to answer every question about which way you'd vote on this or that. But, I mean, fundamentally, I think no deal is a bad idea. It's rather misnamed because, of course, what it really is is no deal for now, because if you left without a deal, of course, the first thing you'd have to do after having left is say to yourself, well, what is my trading relationship going to be with the biggest market that we have, which is on our doorstep, which is the European single market? And soon you'll be back into talking about the deal you're going to get. I mean, two, two points I make. One is no deal's a bad idea, and I have great sympathy for the people who've been trying to make sure that isn't where we go. And the second is, look, the British constitution is basically what the Queen enacts in Parliament is law. That's eight words that sums it up. And ultimately, what Parliament enacts is law. And while it's unorthodox for Parliament to assert itself you know, against the executive, if you don't have a majority, you can't be too surprised when that, when that happens. So what do, you, what do you make of talk that Boris Johnson might just ignore the law? I think it'd be completely wrong, and I don't think he will. Uh, you know, I mean, if you pair back a conservative to their last dying belief, it really should be government under the rule of law is the absolute foundation of our constitution, our success as a country, uh, our place in the world. You know, it really is the heart of the matter. And look, it can be incredibly frustrating. I mean, I was very frustrated when I was being told that European Court of Human Rights says you must give the vote to prisoners. I was like, no way, I'm not going to. That's a matter for Parliament. This is not some foreign court telling us what to do. This is the UK Parliament legislating. And that law, in my view, has to be obeyed. We should also probably talk about John Burko's role in all this. What do you make of the way that speakers behave? Well, I used to have a rule when I got out of bed every morning 
thinking about the day ahead, I always used to think, whatever John Burko can do to make my day utterly miserable, he will do. <laughs> um, and on the whole, it was a very good guide to life. Uh, why is that? When you're Prime Minister, you're, you're trying to get your legislation through, you're trying to handle the opposition days, the debates in Parliament, the motions. And before Burko, there were lots of difficulties, lots of difficult votes, lots, but, you know, the Speaker wouldn't always pick the most out there motion or, or whatever. He just he seemed to have this knack. Um, maybe I'm sounding a bit paranoid. Um, <laughs> but there is something about... Know, we suddenly your, had... Your relationship was more fractious than just it wasn't, it the wasn't speaker. Great. It wasn't great. And I, I, you know, look, I think on the one hand, I'm a bit torn about this because I think it is important. You know, Parliament must have its say. In the end, uh, the government shouldn't do things that Parliament doesn't want. The Speaker has a role in trying to make sure that Parliament speaks. Uh, but on the other hand, there were there were some moments, and I don't actually really go into them in a lot of detail in the book. But I'm li- thinking back at it now. You remember when we had the 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 amendment to the Queen's speech that was from a bunch of backbenchers rather than from the official opposition? That was just something that had never happened, and so it came out of the blue. Ironically, it was an amendment to have a referendum, something that John Berkeley doesn't seem so keen on now. <laughs> um, so I think. Oh, so I'm giving rather a rambling answer. On the one hand, you want a speaker that, that supports backbenchers, that stands up for Parliament, but you've got to try and follow some sort of rules and precedents to have a sense of fair play. I asked this week for listeners to the podcast to send in any questions, and one of them, Alexander Amos, said, who would you choose as the next speaker? Fortunately, I don't have to make that vote. I, I'm, I'm a great Lindsay Hoyle fan. I always thought when he stood in for Burko, I thought uh, he's, he's held in a lot of affection by a lot of... MPs, he seems to know the the rules, and I think he's a pretty um, straight kind of guy. There was another question. Colin Mullaney said, "Is it been difficult to watch Theresa May and Boris Johnson negotiate Brexit when you know you could have done a better job?" Well, no, I don't. I don't think that's. Um, I think what they're finding out is that negotiating with the EU is very hard. This is a rules-based organisation, and I think sometimes we, I mean, we misunderstand each other. That is part of the problem. I think they've never understood the British misgivings about political union, the fact that we are there mainly for the trade and cooperation and partnership, and we don't really like the flag and the parliament and the sort of emblems of of, of statehood. But likewise, I think perhaps when we look at the EU, we think of the single market, and then we think of things like um, the funds that are sent to the poorer member states. We think of them as two separate things. In the EU, they see them as absolutely the same thing. The reason Bulgaria or Romania has agreed to join the single market and open up their markets is they know they're going to get some help with their infrastructure and the things that have held them back in the past. And so, so there's a sort of, I think, that, so that, 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 but to your specific point, you know, so negotiating with the EU is hard. And often when they think they're giving a fundamental concession, as they did with me, they thought that allowing us to say people could come and work in Britain, but they couldn't get welfare benefits for up to four years. They said to me, that is absolute heresy. We've never offered anybody this. This is a terrible thing we're letting you do, but because Britain needs extra help, we'll let you do that. And likewise, with getting out of ever closer union, you know, but ever closer unions at the heart of the treaties. You can't opt out of this. You can't go to a different, and in the end they said, okay, you can have a different destination in mind. Now to them, that was massive. But of course, when I brought it home, people in the UK thought, well, you know, that's not really enough. So, so I think we start from this position where it's hard to negotiate with the EU. And I think what my 
successors have found out is it's, it's hard to get a deal when you're leaving, just as it's hard to get a deal when you're in. To what extent, though, do you think that part of the reason why people have this impression of the EU is because politicians like you spent years moaning about well, the I, EU? Well, I get that. I think and so quite, is, it was yes. quite, your, your apparent convert, and your, it comes across in the book, you're, you're actually very you're a sceptic for much of uh, your time but as I've Tory always leader. Thought you, you know, you, but your, your, late, skeptic, your yes. late conversion <laughs> didn't seem very convincing. Well, except for, to me, being you're a sceptic didn't mean you wanted to leave the EU. It meant you wanted to reform the EU. But I accept there's this criticism, which is so many negative things said about the EU, it made it difficult for you to turn around and campaign to remain. And to that, I'd say two things. One is, I think it is a fair point to say we should have done more to highlight the successes of the single market, what it meant for British business. I did talk about the important moments when we, you know, put oil sanctions on Iran, we got together over Russia on Ukraine. I did talk about European successes, but we could have done more. But the other point I make, and I think it is important, is I wasn't making up stuff about Europe. We were being asked to contribute to Eurozone bailouts, even though we weren't in the Euro. We were being asked to stand behind EU banks, even though we weren't in their currency. There were endless problems that we had to deal with. These weren't fictions, they are part of what you have to deal with. I didn't want in 2010 for Europe to be a big feature in the early months and years of my government, but it was straight away because one of the first things on the plate was Greece needs a bailout, cough up the money. We can, do, we can make you do it under the treaties, I was told. And uh, so you can't say that these were pretend demons. There were real problems um, that had to be fixed. Yes. And I hope that all comes out in the book. I mean, there, there's... Um, Sorry to tell our listeners, but there's more than one chapter about Europe. Actually, it starts with, <laughs> with um, when I worked for Norman Lamont in the Treasury and when we were in the exchange rate mechanism. And I try in that chapter to sort of start the story of Britain and Europe and my views. And I hope it, you know, by the time you get to the chapter about having a referendum, you can see why this was becoming inevitable, why this had to be dealt with. And so it's not all packed there in one chapter. It runs through the book, I hope in a sort of consistent and cogent way. You've talked about how the only way to unblock this blockage might end up being a second referendum. How would you vote if there was one? Well, we don't, we're not there yet. What, I, what I've said is, look, the best thing to happen is for us to have a deal and agree that deal and that to go through Parliament. But I've tried to sort of jump ahead in the book and in questions by saying, look, we are stuck. We have been stuck for three years. We, we can't seem to get a deal through Parliament. So if that doesn't work, you know, logically, there are only three answers. If you can't get the deal through Parliament, you can either have one, another deal. You could have two, a general election, and see if that unblocked the blockage. Or three, you could put the deal or options or what have you to the people in a referendum. And those are all options for unblocking the blockage. We don't have a referendum, but I mean, everyone knows my view. I think we're better off... Uh, so you, you'd uh, we're, still we're, vote we're, we're, we're better off uh, on the inside fighting uh, for a better deal and for changes we need rather than on the outside. If you were going to vote Remain, which sounds like you are, Alice stayed and said, what suggestions, after three years of hopefully thinking about it, would you give to a Remain campaign, should there be a second referendum, to outsmart Cummings and the Leave campaign? <laughs> well, I think uh, this is all jumping too far ahead. We're nowhere near it. But one of the frustrations in the referendum was, um, look, and I, let me be clear, my referendum, my campaign, my failure, you know, I accept responsibility for it. Having said that, I did feel I was out there campaigning as hard as I possibly could. And when I looked to the red team on my left, or well, the leadership particularly, Jeremy Corbyn just wasn't there. 
I mean, I think I put in the book, he suggested at one stage he wanted to help by going to Turkey to make a speech about free movement. Well, you know, <laughs> thanks, Jeremy, that really helped. Um, and then he went on holiday. So, so, you know, the truth is there were parts of the country I was always going to struggle to get my message across in. And the more the Tories fought each other, the more to a voter in Sunderland or Middlesbrough thought, well, this is just some Tory psychodrama, and why do I want to help David Cameron out of this? So I think, you know, really, it was a cross-party campaign. I remember a happy hour spent telephone canvassing with Neil Kinnock and Paddy Ashdown, and uh, sort of unfriends reunited, as it were. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, more of that. So do you think Jeremy Corbyn shoulders some of the blame for... Well, no, I'm not, my book is not about trying to sort of hand out blame. Uh, I'm, I'm trying in my book to be as frank as I can about what I did, what I thought at the time, what I think now, some of the lessons to learn, mistakes I made, uh, and hopefully we'll get on to some of the, the good things yes. um, my government did. But, but look, everyone has to, to ask themselves, well, what, what, um, you know, what have I done? Let's talk about Boris Johnson. What did you make of the scene this week of him being empty-podiumed in Luxembourg? I, I didn't think it was particularly... Helpful. Xavier Bettle always used to say that I was his twin because we, we, we looked alike. You do look I, a he's bit got a beard. Now, he has got so a beard. Now, I can't yeah. incapable of growing a beard, so <laughs> there's no danger of me. I, I, I thought that wasn't helpful. Look, I know passions run high, but what, what was the point of that, really? You know, Britain is a huge contributor to the EU. We've had a democratic vote to leave. We've got to try and, you know, have reasonable relations and talk about how to make this work. And, and I, I didn't think that was a sensible thing to do. Do you sleep easy in your bed knowing that Boris Johnson's Prime Minister? Do you no, think Boris the country's is, in safe hands? I think Boris hands? is a very capable leader. I mean, I've got, you know, in the book, obviously, I try and faithfully reflect what I felt at the time in 2016 about the choice that he made. But I also say he was a good London mayor, and he was. I also say that he's someone who does have leadership abilities. He, he can inspire people. He can win people over. He, he has a, a, a vision about what the country could be. You know, and I genuinely wish him well. I want him to get that deal in Brussels and to come back and get it through Parliament and, and settle this issue. And so, you know, that's, that's what I want to happen. Uh, throughout the book, you describe Jeremy Hunt as a team player to his fingertips, one of the smartest minds, a safe pair of hands. You say Boris Johnson behaved appallingly and left the truth at home. So who did you vote for in the Tory leadership? Uh, my vote was a secret ballot, as um, people always used to, say, used to say to me on the doorstep. It's, it's maddening when you go canvassing, you, you know, someone says that to you. But I'm afraid I'm going to stick to that. I, I and will try to stick to it in subsequent Conservative leadership elections, if I'm alive for any of the future ones. But look, I'm, well, I'm you a huge the, fan of Jeremy Hunt. You're he was book. a very good health secretary. He was also to work with. He was just a great colleague. You know, he wanted to work with you and for you. There's a memorable line where you talk about how you divide the world into team players. Yeah, not for a family audience. <laughs> so you, you say that you divide the world into team players and wankers is the, is the phrase that you use. Uh, and you texted this to, to Michael Gove. One of the things that's come out a lot and people reflecting on the way that you deal with both Boris Johnson and Michael Gove is that there's a sense that you're sort of harder on Michael Gove than you are on Boris Johnson, it, despite them both essentially playing the same role in the Leave I, campaign. I, well, I, you know, people will have to read the the chapter and make up their own mind. I mean, I'd say if you read the first 500 pages of the book, I'm afraid there are more than 500 pages, um, Michael Gove comes across as he was, as a brilliant education secretary, a great reformer, a great sort of leader in terms of the thinking about wanting to change in education. And, you know, where 
sitting here today with some of the schools we set up, the free schools, where over 50% of their GCSEs were seven, eights, and nines. That puts them in the top few hundred of independent schools. Uh, and yet these are state schools um, that we, we established. So Michael did some really great things in education with my total um, support. When it comes to the referendum, look, he was so much part of my inner team. And so it was just very painful to see what happened next. You know, as I, I've said before, he, he said to me, I won't play any part in the campaign, I'll just make one speech and, and that'll be it. But maybe it was naive, but I did believe that, you know, and, and so when he came to sort of lead the campaign and then, you know, stood in front of the posters about 80 million Turks coming to live in Britain and all the rest of it, it was, it was very painful to see that happen. So I, I hope I'm not unfair in the book. I try and, look, there's no point writing a book like this unless you're sort of frank about mistakes you made and things you would have done differently, but you're also frank about other people. And I don't want to bang on about it because, as I say, I want the government to succeed. I want them to get their deal in Brussels. I want Michael to succeed in the work, vital work that he's doing now. But I thought it, there's no, you know, in writing the book, you've got to be frank about what you saw at the time. Is it, a, some people have suggested, is, <coughs> is it a class thing? It, does Boris, is it Boris let off because he's an old Etonian Boris? No, I, thought, Boris. I thought of all the things I've read, I thought that was one of the craziest. Michael was part of my absolute sort of inner team. He and I had talked together and worked together over education reform, over also about how we handled Islamist extremism. I mean, he was a part of my question time team. We were very good friends, our family's friends. He was very, very close. Boris, I've known for years, but and we're, we're friends, but not in the same way. And and so, I, you know, I mean, I, I've, I've heard the accusation that I'm harder on Michael than I am on Boris. I would I would ask people just to read and, and make up their own minds. But as I say, Michael was absolutely part of the the inner team, and so maybe I found that more painful. Have you heard from either of them since the book came out? I've met with both of them, uh, not frequently. No, um, no, since since your book. Oh, came since out. the book came out, I've been in communications with <laughs> both of them. Uh, Are they still both not team players? Um, I think they understand that you, when you write a book like this, you have to be frank about what you thought at the time. I don't think anything I've said would come as a great surprise <laughs> to either of them. And I thought Boris was, um, you know, he's been, been classic. I mean, he is a big guy, you know, he's not uh, snippy and defensive and uh, he's and ditto Michael. And uh, that's the sort of response I've seen from both of them. Given that we're talking about Michael Gove, we probably talk about Dominic Cummings as well. You stopped Dominic Cummings going into government at one point. Well, when I invited Michael to be Education Secretary, I sort of said, look, the good news is I want to give you the job that you want to have, that I want you to have. But the bad news is I'm afraid Dominic Cummings is not coming with you. I'd, I'd sort of come to see, I thought, and I'm, maybe I was wrong, but when Michael was very much part of the inner team planning the elections, we just were subject to an endless series of leaks. And I rather suspected the hand of one um, D Cummings. So I just thought better to have Michael in the tent, but to leave Dominic um, outside it. And then some months later, Michael was having a lot of difficulties with his department and, and, and uh, he said, and I explained this in the book, look, I need to have some of my old team around me and I relented, I think mistakenly. And so Cummings came in. Look, he's a very able guy, there's no doubt about that. I just, it comes back to the team players thing, I suppose. You, you, it, there's always just a danger in- He's in, not on your in, team in, player in, list. <laughs> I think probably not, but um, you know, and that is the truth about government. It is a team endeavour, and actually the way government is established makes it very hard to do that, because every department is its own fiefdom. And it was extraordinary, even with my very close partnership with George Osborne, 
you know, we shared an office in opposition, our team shared an office, and we wanted to bring that thinking into government. And even with the civil service going, thank God we got a chancellor and a prime minister to actually get on with each other. Even with that, I still felt that the way government is established drives a sort of wedge between prime minister and chancellor. And we, the two of us, had to keep jumping over the fences almost that were being erected and say, hold on a second, no, no, he's going to see the budget months before it comes out. And no, no, he's gonna, the Chancellor's going to see the Prime Ministerial speech before anybody else. We had to keep jumping over the fences that were being erected. So long answer to the question, but the importance of team playerness is even more important when you think of the way the government's established. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. I want you to cast your mind back to the Tory party when you were running to lead it in 2005. You wrote then, we had little to say beyond crime, tax cuts and Europe. Swathes of the population wouldn't go anywhere near us. Isn't that where the Tory party is again now? I don't think it is. I think if you look at, I mean, it's difficult to look beyond and behind Brexit, but I think let's, let's try and do that. I mean, first thing is the Conservative Party, the Conservative Parliamentary Party is a very different organisation. It's far more diverse, not just in terms of men and women, but also people from uh, every different part of the country, people representing very different areas. You know, we've got Conservative MP for Stoke-on-Trent Central and parts of Middlesbrough, and we've got more Scottish MPs. So it's a far, it's a different conversation takes place inside the Conservative Party, much more like the conversation that takes place between the Conservative Party and the country. And if you look at the passion that a lot of our MPs have for education reform and social reform, and uh, d- dealing, you know, with problems of inequality and stalled opportunity, it's a very different Conservative Party, and all, all to the all to the good. So. Is there a risk that it's sort of retoxifying the Tory party, which you 10 years ago, 15 years ago, tried hard? There's to a Tory danger party. for this reason, which is it's not necessary that if you are a pro-Brexit party, you are actually anti-liberal, anti-social reform, anti-modernisation, etc., etc. You know, those two things can go together. But I think some people see Brexit as a sort of shorthand for being against those things. And so the Conservative Party has to work even harder to prove it is still the modern, compassionate Conservative Party um, that I helped to, to build. But I think when you, uh, as I say, look at the people in Parliament, I think that's, that's doable. Would you have ever made Pretty Patel Home Secretary? 
Do, um, do you think that presents the, the modern, I, compassionate I, 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 Tory party that you wanted? I, I, um, uh, you know, I was very struck in the referendum, as I put in the book. I don't want to, uh, you know, uh, bang on about it. What, your um, book? No, no, I want to bang on about the book. But, um, you, you, you want me to go beyond the things I said. Uh, you know, I just thought the way some people behaved in the referendum campaign, I just thought was beyond the pale. And, and I, I think I put her in that category just because inevitably there were going to be big arguments and divisions and all the rest of it. But there, there, there was on occasion a sort of trashing of the government and people's reputations and, and integrity and all the rest of it, which I just thought went um, beyond. We just touch on, move off Brexit for a moment, touch on austerity. You've talked about how you didn't get all, you, you said it was the right thing to do, maybe you should have done some of the, taken some of the decisions earlier. But you said you didn't get all the decisions right. What were the decisions that you think you got wrong? S small ones like, uh, you know, forestry, for instance, where you just, on the whole, when you're trying to make savings in this vast government budget, you know, there are two ways of doing it. You can try and take a little bit from everything, or you can look at the really big spends, which are public sector pay and the welfare bill, and try and make reforms that have a purpose as well as saving money. Um, whereas some of the smaller changes just caused inordinate noise and disquiet and unease amongst people. So there were definite mistakes there. I think one of the, I mean, I would say one of the successes was actually the uh, reform of tuition fees, because there was something where it was a genuine reform. We were asking successful graduates to pay more. We were reducing the cost of higher education, but we were ensuring that people who went to university didn't pay anything up front. So that was a reform that saved money. And, you know, the evidence is university um, attendance uh, went up, university attendance by those from the poorest backgrounds went up. Um, so it shows you could reform, make progress and save money at the same time. But look, above all, and this I think does is something I'm going to have to bang on about, um, you know, this programme, painful and difficult though it was, did work. We got the budget deficit down by two thirds. We created two and a half million jobs, a million new businesses. We became the fastest growing country in the G7. It was a difficult but necessary programme and it worked. One of the most, the standout sections in, in the book is when you write so movingly about your son, Ivan, and in particular the years you spent in NHS hospitals relying on social services and that sort of thing. Can you understand then why people are cross about the fact that the services that they relied on that made their lives better were cut as a result of austerity? Well, of course, the NHS wasn't cut. Um, you know, we said, Social services, councils, housing, a lot, we, there were we lots put, of budgets, we, we put, budget cuts made yes, that people we, relied on. We put money, you know, we said we're going to have to make difficult decisions, but we're going to keep on increasing the money that goes into the NHS, and we did, and we tried. I wish we had done more to try and heal this divide between health and social services, but we did put extra money into that collaboration between the two. But look, of course, there were uh, difficult decisions. You can't reduce the world's biggest budget deficit without looking at local government. But actually, local government, to be fair to them, they showed the way how you could make very significant savings and maintain good services. And actually, levels of satisfaction with local government, I think during the course of the government, actually went up rather than, rather than down. Just finally then, I've been mm. using this phrase for some time now, this is not normal. It's, born, I mean, mm. it's, the, it's the title of my hugely popular stand-up show, tickets are available. Please come to the Chipping Norton Theatre. Um, <laughs> a lot of comics go there to try out their acts. Well, there's, there's quite a lot about you in the show, so, that, so that maybe that would go <sighs> okay, down well. No, I think I, I might uh, sit this one out. You write about in the book about how Brexiteers, the rise of the far left and the hard right, had shown that anti-establishment, divisive populist politics was the new normal. Do you think this new sort of tribal politics is the new normal, or is, is there a way back to I what? think there is a way back. I mean, this is 
is partly what the book is about. I think the, the backwash from uh, the economic catastrophe of 2007, 2008, I, I think had two very profound effects. It created amongst a lot of people a sense of economic insecurity, which they had perhaps felt because of the, some of the effects of globalization. But it also heightened the sense of cultural insecurity and people deeply concerned about the pace of change in their communities and the level of immigration. And I think politics has got to properly respond to these two trends. If we don't, um, if the mainstream parties don't, I think the populists will keep winning. And so I think for a modern centre-right party or indeed centre-left party, um, you've got to do more to get people into work, better apprenticeships, more skills, more training, give people the chance, cut taxes more for the lowest paid. You've got to give people a chance to, to live a good life. And then you've got to reassure them on the things that concern them. Chiefly, and my government didn't do enough on this, is levels of immigration that people have felt for year after year have been too high and they've been frustrated that politicians haven't done enough about it. So the, the, we can go back to a more rational, reasonable, moderate, sensible politics, but only if we properly reassure people that we are coping with the things that, that are um, concerning them. That's all we've got time for in part one of this Red Box podcast special. In part two, what's it really like to be Prime Minister? You can read the extracts from For the Record at thetimes.co.uk and subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Acast or wherever you listen. My thanks to David Cameron. For me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.